Chapter Fifty of the Wanderer, or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties, by Fanny Burney. Chapter Fifty. Juliet, as earnest to avoid, as Flora felt eager to pursue, the opening feats, hurried from the destined spot, after charging the simple damsel not to make known her departure. Unavailing, however, was the caution, and immaterial alike the prudence or the indiscretion of Flora. Juliet had no sooner crossed the first stile than she perceived Sir Lyle Sycamore sauntering in the meadow. She would promptly have returned to the farm, but a shout of noisy merriment reached her ears from the company that she was quitting, and pointed out the danger of passing the evening in the midst of such turbulent and vulgar revelry. She hastened therefore on, but neither the lightness of her step, nor the swiftness of her speed, could save her from the quick approach of the baronet. "'My angel!' he cried. "'Whither are you going? And why this prodigious haste? What is it my angel fears? Can she suppose me rascal enough?' or fool enough to make use of any violence? No, my angel, no, I only ask to be regaled from your own sweet lips with the delicious tale of divine partiality that the quaint old knight began revealing. I sigh, I pant to hear confirmed. Hold, Sir Lyle, interrupted Juliet, if Sir Jasper is the author of this astonishing mistake, I trust he will have the honour to rectify it. When I named you to him, it was but with a view to rescue a credulous young creature from your pursuit, whom I feared it might injure, not to expose to it one whom it never can endanger, however deeply it may offend. Struck and disappointed at the courage and coolness of this explanation, Sir Lyle looked mortified and amazed, but, upon seeing her reach the stile, he sprang over it, and, recovering his usual effrontery, offered her his hand. Juliet knew not whether her risk were greater to proceed or to return, but while she hesitated, a phaeton which was driving by stopped, and an elderly lady, addressing the baronet in a tone of fawning courtesy, inquired after his health, and added, "'So you are come to this famous junket, Sir Lyle?' Sir Lyle forced a laugh and bowed low, though he muttered loud enough for Juliet to hear, "'What cursed spies!' Juliet now perceived Mrs. and Miss Brinville, and neither innocence nor contempt of calumny could suppress a rising blush at being surprised by persons already unfavourably disposed towards her, in a situation apparently so suspicious. The countenance of the mother exhibited strong chagrin at the sight of Juliet, while the daughter, in a tone of pique, said, "'No doubt, but you are well amused, Sir Lyle.' They drove on, not, however, very fast, and with so little self-command, as frequently to allow themselves to look back. This indelicacy, however ill-adapted to raise them in the esteem of the baronet, at least rescued Juliet from his persecution. Disconcerted himself, he felt the necessity of decency, and quitting her, with affected carelessness, 
he hummed an air, while grumbling curses, and swinging his switch to and fro, walked off, not more careful that the ladies in the phaeton should see him depart, than assiduous to avoid with them any sort of junction. The relief caused to Juliet by his retreat was cruelly clouded by her terror of the false suggestions to which this meeting made her liable. Neither mother nor daughter would believe it accidental, nor credit it to have been contrived without equal guilt in both parties. "'Is there no end, then,' she cried, "'to the evils of defenceless female youth? And even where actual danger is escaped, must slander lie in wait to misconstrue the most simple actions by surmising the most culpable designs?' Neither to follow the footsteps of Sir Lyle, nor to remain where he might return. She was going back to the farm, when she was met by Flora, who, with a species of hysterical laughter, nearly of kin to crying, called out, "'So, ma'am, so, Miss Ellis, I've caught you at last, I've surprised you at last, according with my sweetheart!' Pitying her credulous ignorance, Juliet would have cleared up this mistake, but the petulant Flora would not listen. "'I'll speak to the gentleman myself!' she cried, running forward to the stile, for I have found out your design, so it's of no use to deny it. I saw you together all the way I came, so you may as well not try to make a ninny of me, Miss Ellis, for it ain't so easy. Catching a glimpse of the baronet as he descended the road, she jumped over the stile to run after him. But seeing him look round, and, though he perceived her, quietly walk on, she stopped, crying bitterly, very well, Miss Ellis, very well, you've got your ends, I see that, and I don't thank you for it, I assure you, for I liked him very well, and it ain't so easy to find a man of quality every day, so it ain't doing as you'd be done by, for nobody likes much to be forsaken no more than I, I believe, for it ain't so agreeable, and I had rather you had not served me so by half, in particular for a man of quality." Juliet, though vainly, was endeavouring to appease and console her, when a young lady, bending eagerly from the window of a post-chaise which was passing by, ejaculated, "'Ellis!' and Juliet, with extreme satisfaction, perceived Eleanor. The chaise stopped, and Juliet advanced to it with alacrity, but before she could speak, the impatient Eleanor, still looking pale, meagre, and wretched, burst forth with rapid and trembling energy, into a string of disordered, incoherent, scarcely intelligible interrogatories. "'Ellis, what brings you to this spot? Whither is it you go? What project are you forming? What purpose are you fulfilling? Whom are you flying? Whom are you following? What is it you design? What is it you wish? Why are you here alone? Where? Where?' Leaning, then, still further out of the window, she fixed, nearly haggard, yet piercing eyes upon those of Juliet, and, in a hollow voice, dictatorially added, "'Where, tell me, I charge you, where is Harley?' Consternation at sight of her altered countenance, and a fright at the impetuosity of her questions, produced a hesitation in the answer of Juliet, that, to the agitated Eleanor, seemed the effect of surprised guilt." Her pallid cheeks then burnt with the mixed feelings of triumph and indignation, yet her voice sought to disguise her wounded feelings, 
and in subdued though broken accents tis well she cried you no longer at least seek to deceive me and i thank you deaf to explanation or representation she then hurried her weak frame from the chaise aided by her foreign lackey and directing julia to follow crossed the road to a rising ground upon the downs seated herself sent off her assistant and made juliette take a place by her side while flora returned crying and alone to the farm now then she said that you try no more to delude to cajole to blind me tell me now and in two words where is harleigh believe me madam juliet was tremblingly beginning when elinor casting off the little she had assumed of self-command passionately cried must i again be played upon by freezing caution and duplicity must i die without end the lingering death of cold inaction and uncertainty breathe for ever without living where i demand is harleigh where have you concealed him why will harleigh the noble harleigh degrade himself by any concealment why stoop to the subtlety of circumspection to spare himself the appearance of destroying one whose head heart and vitals all feel the reality of the destruction he inflicts and yet not he no no tis my own ruthless star he loves me not he is not responsible for my misery though he is master of my fate where is he where is he you who are the tyrant of his tell me and at once i solemnly protest you madam with the singleness of the most scrupulous truth cried juliet recovering her presence of mind i am entirely ignorant of his abode his occupations and his intentions and why she secretly added am i not equally unacquainted with his feelings and his wishes unable to discredit the candour with which this was pronounced and filled with wonder yet involuntarily consoled the features of elinor lost their rigidity and her eyes their fierceness and in milder accents she replied strange how strange where then can he be with whom how employed does he fly the whole world as well as elinor has no one his society no one his confidence his society which by contrast makes all existence without it disgusting his confidence which to obtain i would yet live though doomed daily to the rack oh harleigh love like mine who has felt love like mine oh but you oh matchless harleigh ever inspired tears now gushed into her eyes ashamed and angry with herself she hastily brushed them off with the back of her hand and with forced vivacity continued he thinks perchance to sicken me into the pining end of a lovesick consumption to avert the kindly bowl or dagger that cut short human misery for the languors the sufferings and despair of a loathsome natural death and for what to restore to preserve me no i have no share in the arrangement no interest no advantage from the plan appearances alone are considered all else is regarded as immaterial or sacrificed and he harleigh the noblest the only noble of men can level himself with the narrowest and most illiberal of his race to pay coward obeisance to appearances again she then repeated her personal interrogatories to juliet 
and demanded whether she should set off immediately for Gretna Green with Lord Melbury, or whether she must wait till he should be of age. "'Neither!' Juliet solemnly answered, and frankly recounted her recent difficulties, and entreated the advice of Elinor for adopting another plan of life. Elinor, interrupting her, said, "'Nay, t'was your own choice, you know, to live in a garret and hem pocket-handkerchiefs.' "'Choice, madam! Alas, deprived of all but personal resource, I fixed upon a mode of life that promised me, at least, my mental freedom. I was not then aware how imaginary is the independence that hangs for support upon the uncertain fruits of daily exertions. Independent, indeed, such situations may be deemed from the oppressions of power, or the tyrannies of caprice and ill-humour, but the difficulty of obtaining employment, the irregularity of pay, the dread of want, ah, what is freedom but a name for those who have not an hour at command from the subjection of fearful penury and distress? If all this is so, said Elinor, which, unless you wait for Lord Melbury's majority, is more than incomprehensible, what say you now to an asylum safe, at least, from torments of this sort? Will you commission me, at length, to apply to Mrs. Ireton? Juliet, instinctively, recoiled at the very name of that lady. Yet a little reflection upon the dangers to which she was now exposed, through unprotected poverty, through the lawless pursuit of Sir Lyle Sycamore, and the vindictive calumnies of the Brinvilles, made the wish of solid safety repress the disgusts of offended sensibility, and, after a painful pause, she recommended herself to the support of Elinor, resolving to accept, for the moment, any proposition that might secure her an honourable refuge from want and misconception. Elinor, looking at her suspiciously, said, and Harley, will he let you submit to such slavery? Mr. Harley, Juliet protested, could have no influence upon her determination. But you yourself, who a month or two ago could so ill bear her tauntings, how is it you are thus suddenly endued with so much humility? Alas, madam, all choice, all taste, all obstacles sink before necessity. When I came over I had expectations of immediate succour. I knew not that the friend I sought was herself ruined, as well as unhappy. I had hopes, too, of speedy intelligence that might have liberated me from all my difficulties. She stopped. Elinor exclaimed, From whence? From abroad? Juliet was silent, and Elinor, after a few passing sallies against secrets and mystery, sarcastically bid her consider, before she adopted this new scheme, that Harley never visited at Mrs. Ireton's, having taken, in equal portions, a dose of aversion for the mother, and of contempt for the son. Juliet calmly replied that such a circumstance could be but an additional motive to seek the situation, and, hopeless, for the moment, of doing better, seriously begged that proper measures might be taken to accelerate the plan. Elinor, now from mingled wonder, satisfaction, and scorn, recovered all her wanted vivacity. "'You are really, and bona fide, contented, then,' she cried, "'to be shut up as completely from Harley, through his horror of that woman's irascible temper, as if you were separated by bolts, bars, dungeons, towers, and bastilles. I applaud your taste, and wish you the full enjoyment of its fruits.' 
yet what materials you can be made of to see the first of men in your feet and voluntarily to fly him to be trampled under by those of the most odious of women i cannot divine tis an exuberance of apathy that surpasses my comprehension and can he the spirited harley love adore such a composition of ice of snow of marble she could not however disguise the elation with which she looked forward to depositing Juliet where information might constantly be procured of her visitors and her actions. They went together to the carriage, and Elinor conveyed her submissive and condemned yet agonizingly envied rival to Brighthelmstone. In her usually unguarded manner, Elinor, by the way, communicated the various but successless efforts by which she had endeavoured to gain intelligence whither Harleigh had rambled. "'If I pursue him,' she cried, "'with the vanity of hope, or with the meanness of flattery, "'he would do well to shun me. "'But the pure-minded Harleigh is capable of believing "'that the moment is over for Elinor to desire to be his, "'and to sustain at once and show my principles. "'I never seek his sight, but in presence of her "'who has blasted even my wishes. "'Else thus clamorously to invoke, "'thus pertinaciously to follow him, "'might indeed merit avoidance.' but Elinor now would be as superior to accepting, as she is to forgetting him. Yet his obdurate seclusion, she continued, is the only mark I receive that I escape his disdain. It shows me that he fears the event of a meeting. He does not, therefore, utterly deride the pusillanimity of my abortive attempt. Oh, could I justify his good opinion! All others, I doubt not, insult me by the most ludicrous suspicions. They are welcome." They judge me by their little-minded selves. But thou, O oh Harleigh, could I see thee once more, In thy sight, thy loved sight, could I sink, at last, My sorrows and my disgrace to rest, To oblivion, to sleep eternal. Vainly Juliet essayed to plead the cause of religion And the duties of life. Unanswered, unmarked, unheard, She talked but to the air. All that was uttered in return began and ended alike with Harley, death, and annihilation. End of chapter fifty. Recording by Roxana Nazari.